Okay, so this is our um, our second week reading Simon Dolan's text, Form Information Potentials, uh, in particular the discussion portion. Um, uh, so we read the, the summary and then the first half of the discussion, and now we're reading the, the second half. So we got to the intervention of um, Gabrielle Nafstel, who um, um, for some reason introduced Herbart um, who was a 19th century German philosopher. Um, he sort of had a certain influence on education theory, as far as I know, but um, has mostly been forgotten. Um, and uh, the little that I've read of, of his um, suggests that might not be an accident that he, was been, he has been forgotten. Um, but um, uh, anyway, so uh, Marcel brings up Herbart, um, for an unknown reason, because he doesn't know anything about Herbart either. Um, and uh, Simonon says that he doesn't know anything about it. Um, but uh, so the the issue that uh, Marcel brought up was um, um, whether Simondon's uh, exposition uh, requires an ontology, um, whether he has to have a, a sort of a preliminary ontology in order to fit in um, the, the concepts that he's presenting. And Simon Don uh, rejects that idea. He, he says we, we don't, he actually thinks that um, an ontology in this case is not possible. Um, so because um, in the sphere of the human, uh, there's, no, um, there's no sort of elemental, um, there's no elements or, or atoms or something like that. There's no, um, uh, smallest component out of which everything else is built up, and there's no um, totality, there's no um, group of all groups uh, in the, the realm of the human. Uh, and so for that reason, we can only ever have um, somewhere an, an intermediate uh, science or, or uh, discourse. It can only be in the realm of the intermediate rather than the atomic or the, the, tot the totality. Um, so we're always in the realm of the, the psychosocial rather than uh, the psychology in the strict sense or uh, sociology in the strict sense. Um, and so that's that's sort of where we got up, got up to. We're still um, looking at this interaction between uh, Marcel and Simon Don. Um, so we can continue from there. That was a good explanation. Thank you. Right. So um, I think where we got to was... Um, on near the bottom of page four, where um, Marcel asks, uh, or he, he starts saying, I'm not saying that it is. Um, I think that, that was where we got to. So I'll start from there. Um, what we started doing last week, which was kind of fun, um, was to have one person read uh, uh, one intervention and then have someone else read the, the response. Uh, so if someone else would like to, to um, take on the Simon Dome parts, uh, I'll read the Marcel parts and someone else can read Simon Dome. Uh, right, so uh, Marcel says, I'm not saying that it is, uh, so I'm not saying that um, an anthropology is possible. Um, but I have the impression that if you did not pose it as a prerequisite, then all that you say, I mean the passages that you operate from one order to another, for example, if you will, from the psychological order to the sociological order, appears arbitrary and questionable. That's just what I meant. Once again, it seems to me, on the other hand, extremely attractive and very interesting. We are in the middle term. We are at the level of correlations. It is a pure psychosociology, one could say. I tried to say that there was no pure psychology 
but the one was always, even when one studies the individual, and even when one studies the group at the level of a psychosociology, that is to say, a study of the domains. Yes, but this psychosociology, in spite of everything, you suspend on a physics to the extent that you have introduced, for example, at a given moment, the idea of a difference in potential, which has all the same, an extremely precise sense for a physicist. But from the moment you apply it to the psychosociological field, it still seems to me, uh, sorry, yeah, it still seems to me to be questionable. Yes, but it is an application of a paradigmatic thought. I am not the first to do it. I would like to know what the philosophy of the paradigm is for you. I think I legitimize the analogy. I think I legitimize the paradig paradigmatism. And I believe I have legitimized the use of an analogy by the notion of transduction. There is somehow identity between the method I use, which is an analogical method, and the ontology that I suppose, which is an ontology of the transduction uh, of the transductive operation in taking shape. If the transductive operation of the form taking does not exist, the analogy is an invalid logical process. It is a postulate. The postulate is both ontological and methodological here. Right, so we'll stop there for, for, um, for now. Um, so that's the, sort of the intervention or the, the exchange with Marcel ends there. Um, uh, that last paragraph from Simondon is very important. Um, um, so this is a, a key notion for him, uh, the, the way that transductive, um, the transductive operation uh, corresponds to uh, the analogical thinking. Um, or he, he puts it in um, the individuation book, he says that uh, transduction is what is valid about analogical thinking. Um, so um, we also saw in the um, uh, mode of existence of technical objects, uh, the, the book that we uh, just finished reading a couple weeks ago, um, he, he explains an analogical thinking or analogy um, as having to do with the relation between figure and ground uh, within uh, an entity. So um, there, there's a Within each entity, there's uh, a figure and ground elements or aspects. Uh, there's something uh, pre-individual in, that remains within an individuated being. Uh, so that's the ground aspect. And then there's the, the individuated uh, result of that process of individuation, uh, which is the figure aspect. Um, and then the analogical relationship is a relation between those relations. So the relation between, between figure and ground in one entity and the relation between figure and ground in another entity uh, are themselves related, and that relation is the uh, analogy. Um, and so, uh, as, as he points out in this, in this paragraph, his, his, this postulate of uh, transductive thinking, uh, or, or the transductive operation, is both ontological and methodological, so it's at the same time He's postulating that this this operation is um, something that characterizes uh, the the genesis of entities, uh, and is also um, what governs um, the method of thinking. Um, because, uh, as he also explains in a couple places, the um, 
our knowledge of transduction is uh, brought about by performing a transductive operation within knowledge. So the the actual uh, operation of thinking uh, through which we come to know transductive operations is itself transductive. Uh, so, so that's why this uh, postulate it has to be both ontological and methodological at the same time. Um, sorry, folks, it's been a while since I've been around, but I'm, I'm excited to get back into this moment. Um, I was just just to clarify that, so I was just trying to read a little bit of some other stuff from like the foreword and some other texts. What you're saying about the methodological and the analogical, does that have to do as well with his concept of information? And uh, I, I can't remember which essay I was reading, but it was talking about how in a, like the mistaken view for him, or, or like one, the traditional philosophical view is a view of, if you even want to call it information, but one in which like... Um, the information is lost in the procedure as it's sort of uh, translated into the new thing. But the point for, for him is in the transductive, like it's not, um, I think the phrase he uses, like it's not equal or it's not able to be like reciprocated across the equation. You know, like it, it just goes back to, to what it was. You can't just keep translating things into each other endlessly, but that uh, whatever the starting term or the starting content of uh, informational thing is, mm-hmm. is like the, 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 the seed that is like like the crystal or whatever. I, I might be mixing things here. I'm just trying to understand the um, if that is related to his point about the methodological. Um, yeah, I think um, I think the the idea that you're getting at there is the um, so in in this text itself in form information potentials um, in, in the lecture itself that we didn't read, uh, but it, also in the the summary part that we we did read, um, he. He characterizes um, the traditional notion of information, uh, so the the notion from information theory as a reciprocal relation. Um, So it's in the sense that um, the receiver and transmitter are reversible. Uh, They they, they operate on the same code um, and uh, the the actual uh, transmission of information can be reversed. Um, But... uh, um, so on this on this form of information, um, there's actually uh, um, information can only ever be lost on this account um, uh, in the transmission. Uh, it, it can only um, transmit uh, accurately, in which case you have zero loss, or you, you can have degradation through the introduction of noise, and then you you lose information. Um, but what Simondon wants to account for with his notion of information, uh, the, his modified notion is for the, the creation of information. Um, so how, how exactly is the information created in the first place that can secondarily be transmitted? Um, and uh, so this notion of transduction is supposed to account for the, the creation of information. Um, so it's through the, the structuring of um, uh, uh, this um, pre-individuated field um, uh, that information is, uh, comes about or that the, the the field comes to be structured. Um, so, so yes, I, I do think it is related um, in the sense that uh, um, this notion of transduction is supposed to account for how information is generated in the first place before transmission. Um, so, yeah, those those two um, themes are related. Um, so, are there any other questions or comments before we go on to the the next? Um, sort of interaction within the, the dialogue? Yeah, maybe a brief uh, um, take if somebody 
can talk a little bit about the crystallization just as a kind of review um, if that's relevant the transduction right yeah we we um we did talk about this a bit last week but um because we didn't read the lecture itself um he didn't we didn't have um like the sort of detailed uh, analysis of this and we'll see this um pretty soon in the individuation book. It's in uh, chapter one, I believe. Um, so in a couple of weeks, once we get through the introduction, uh, we should get to that. Um, but the, the general idea um, is that he takes, um, he takes the formation of crystals as a, a model for how this transductive process occurs in general. Um, so in formation of crystals, you have a, a supersaturated solution, um, which is unstructured. It doesn't have any, um, um, uh, sort of, um, it, it doesn't have a crystal structure already. Um, and then a germ, um, a, a tiny piece of crystal is introduced into the solution. And then uh, the solution starts to crystallize around the germ. Uh, so the, um, the transductive operation occurs at the limit of the, the crystal already formed, the, the germ, and then the, the slowly forming crystal. Um, so the the operation occurs always at the limit um, of the of the the already structured um, and the unstructured, and um, so the transductive operation uh, is how the the solution um, takes on structure. And uh, so this crystallization um, he he uses this as the model for transductive operations in other realms as well. So. Um, um, We'll see in the individuation book that uh, he relates this to the formation of living beings as well. Um, and uh, um, uh, as uh, we discussed a little bit uh, today, that um, the intellectual operation of uh, analogy um, uh, is, a, is also a model of, uh, of transduction. So um, it's drawing the taking the example of the crystallization and uh, using it as a, a model for other types of operations. It sounds like it's coming from uh, kind of a material science uh, understanding, a little bit, you know, physical, chemical. Um, uh, yeah, so he, he, he's drawing these notions from uh, physics um, as um, um, so as, as he says in, in this dialogue here, um, as, as paradigms um, that can be applied to other uh, domains and in the individuation book, he, so he starts from uh, physical individuation. Um, uh, first, he first looks at the example of a, a, a brick being formed um, and why that example is uh, in some ways misleading um, as we we saw um, in the end of the, uh, the, the conclusion of the on-mode of existence of technical objects, um, the, the brick example is, uh, can be misleading because it, it leads to a, a hylomorphic uh, schema, so a, um, a schema in which form and matter interact. Um, and uh, um, again, we'll see the more detailed his criticisms of, uh, of that notion, uh, but then he, he goes on to the, the formation of the crystal, which he takes to be the the more um, uh, the, the better example to use um, as a, a form of um, individuation of physical objects. Uh, and then he goes on to living beings and um, 
psychic individuation and psychosocial individuation um, in the second part of the book. And, but we'll get to that uh, probably in a few months because it's, uh, it'll take a while to get there. But um, uh, yeah, so it's, it's drawing from these, these paradigms in the physical sciences and applying them to other domains as well. Oh, and I should also mention, uh, if anyone wants to post questions or, or comments or anything in the chat, they can do that as well. And uh, uh, so, yeah, you can either um, go on the, the mic and, and ask a question or, or post it in, in the chat and uh, or if you have any comments on what we're reading as well. Uh, and we can try to uh, answer the questions and uh, uh, address the comments. Um, but if there's nothing else uh, for this um, section, I think we can go on to the next um, exchange um, between Simon Don and uh, Duguay. So can I get uh, two volunteers to read the exchange? Uh, so here's Daniel Duguay. I can tell you that I was very interested in the whole axiomatic aspect of your presentation. And I would like to point out that at, that at the statistics seminar of the Faculty of Science, we deal with questions of this kind. There appears to be an axiomatic structure in mathematics at the present time that could encompass the theory of opinion, the theory of the lifespan of organisms, certain theories of resistance of materials, such as the theory of wear of mechanical parts. This axiomatic structure is that of the largest or weakest values. The resistance of a chain is, as everyone knows, that of the weakest link. In the same way, the opinion of a group, which earlier caught your attention, is the opinion of one person, the one whose social data, either his position or his moral influence, allow him to radiate his opinion. It's the leader. Yes, just as the weakest link in a chain besides its own existence has a collective existence that characterizes the resistance of the chain, so the personal opinion of the leader is an exhaustive summary. It is the term we use in statistics of the opinion of the group it controls. In my opinion, it is wrong to see in public opinion a phenomenon of average. It is, on the contrary, a phenomenon of extreme values, always in the statistical sense of the term. Physiology makes it possible to pose certain problems which have a similar axiomatic structure. The life of an organism is the life of the most fragile organ. It would certainly be very interesting to study this, uh, to study from this point of view, the mortality curves of the different species. How is it that life, that the life of a human organism is about 80 years old, that of a dog of 15, that of a cat of 18 to 19, that of a horse about 40 years old? All these things have never been explained, and I think they relate in an axiomatic that would be the one of the greatest value. Yes, but the axiomatic of the greatest value could then have some analogies with the theory of transductivity. Because if a chain has the resistance of its weakest link, it is because there is a transfer, it might be said, coupling from one link to the other. Certainly. Just as a wall is able to support the weight that its worst built base is able to support, because it is a system of vertical transfer of forces, we would end up with a theory analogous to the Cartesian doctrine here, that of the transfer. The link does not have a proper existence, it has a collective existence. The weakest link is a link, but at the same time the whole chain. Because there is concatenation, because you're dealing with a transductive structure. Right, so we can pause there. Um, well, thank you uh, for that little uh, uh, reenactment for us. Um, uh, yeah, so some of this is a little bit, um, I would say, compressed. Um, um, it, so it's, uh, there's a, a sort of brief mention or, or allusion to uh, the Cartesian doctrine. Uh, that Simon Don makes, and we saw this um, a few months ago, actually, when we read, uh, um, uh, I can't remember the title of the text right now, but um, he talks about the, uh, 
Cartesian model of reasoning um, as as being a, a chain of reasons. So there's a um, you start from something uh, uh, fundamental, something that is uh, absolutely certain, um, like the cogito, um, and then you uh, transmit certainty along the chain of reasons, uh, and each link has to transmit the certainty to the next one, and um, uh, the whole chain will be uh, a strong chain. Um, you'll have a, a certain uh, sequence of, of reasonings if, uh, as long as each each link transmits the certainty to the next one. Um, so that's the the, doc, the Cartesian doctrine that he uh, refers to in passing in this um, in this uh, exchange here. So uh, in modeling. Uh, the, the reasoning process on uh, uh, the transmission of force across a chain. I, I don't have anything to say on this one, but could I be a uh, record for this next part? Uh, sure. Um, before we get to that, though, I just wanted to um, maybe talk a little bit about um, Duguay's intervention um, because, um, yeah, I'm not sure exactly what he's referring to when he talks about um, this uh, um, axiomatic within the realm of statistics um, but I think um, I think the idea or the, the sort of general approach that Duguay um, is is finding uh, in common between what he's doing in the statistical realm and what Simon Don is doing in philosophy is um, um, that that paradigmatism that Simon Don uh, mentioned uh, in the previous exchange um, so in, in the way that Simon Don draws um, uh, a paradigm from one realm and applies it to a different realm, so like a, a physical um, process is taken as a model for uh, an intellectual process, for example. Um, in the same way, in, in statistics, um, you can uh, create a statistical model that is maybe drawn from um, um, uh, mortality statistics uh, and you know, lifespan statistics and apply that same type of model to uh, public opinion. Um, so it's, uh, it's that same, it's that paradigmatism, I think, is what Duguay is identifying as um, common to what he does and what Simon Don is doing. Duguay is, uh, is he like a biochemist or? I couldn't find much information about him on interwebs. Yeah, I actually don't know him at all. Um, I'm not sure, I mean, he, he talks about Working in the in the um, the statistics department, um, so I, I would guess he must be a, a mathematician or uh, something along those lines. Um, but I'm not sure. I was thinking about, I guess, the, the difference between uh, the averages um, um, and the max, the maximum, or the what do you call the extreme values? I think if you're just taking like a, if you're mapping from some sample set to like the reels or something like that, then like you can you could kind of take the average or kind of the maximum of that, I guess. And I think that that's kind of the statistical sense of of the difference between like the the average and the maximum value. So you would you would get the the highest representative, well, the highest value in the in the sample set would be the um, resultant value or the lowest. Those would be the extreme values, I suppose. I don't know, I'm not a statistics uh, um, studier, but I think that that's probably sufficient to understand kind of the statistic sense in which he's trying to get that across, maybe. I don't know. 
Go ahead. Oh, just quickly, I was kind of thinking that too, that the uh, the mean and the minimum and the maximum were sort of axiomatic for sticks. Hmm. And in this sense, I find it very interesting that he's um, contrasting here this, this notion of the average in certain systems, um, maybe in, in, um, in opinion sense, like in, in, in social psychology or in an organism, uh, and this um, notion of the uh, extreme of a minimum and a maximum. Uh, as he said, uh, the weakest part of a chain defines the chain. So um, in this sense, when we look, for example, at an organism, we don't have to uh, assume that there is an um, average form of uh, interaction between all these parts, because this would uh, say not very much about uh, an organism, uh, as well as the the um, average of income of um, all um, the population doesn't say a lot about um, the the social structure, because you have to look at the, the median and uh, at the extremes, how uh, much are these varying. The, ex, uh, the extreme highs and the extreme lows. And in this sense, uh, when we are looking at extremes, like uh, in the, the minimum as well as in the maximum, there comes in a form of dynamic, um, for example, in organisms, because uh, as there was said, um, around this weakest points in an organism, um, the, the rest of the organism has to uh, compensate this in, in a certain sense, not to average it out but to structure it in this way that uh, the interconnectedness, uh, interconnectedness is um, supported even in the future and not that uh, the weakest point is, is falling off or um, is, is um, risking the whole structure in itself. So there has to be a, a constant uh, evolution about these uh, different extremes so they uh, support each other. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think uh, I think it's a good point to um, to tie this notion of uh, extremes, uh, minimum and maximum, to uh, to uh, a dynamics um, because uh, I think it helps to make sense of that maybe a little bit obscure remark where he says that um, we should think of uh, public opinion as a phenomenon of uh, extreme values rather than as uh, a, a phenomenon of of um, the average. Um, um, and this is like there's a I guess a, a sort of um, commonplace idea of um, public opinion as, as um, having to do with the average opinion, um, and uh, you know the, you have opinion polling and and uh, you know saying you know, the average American believes X, Y, and Z, uh, or the average um, German or whatever, um, and uh, um, this uh, notion that um, this notion that there's um, the extreme, um, the extreme is is uh, where public opinion is sort of uh, centered. I think, um, uh, or I mean, not centered, but um, the that the extreme values are are what characterize public opinion um, already. Uh, um, brings with it this notion that there's a, a sort of structuring of the domain uh, on the basis of these extreme values, um, that somehow there's a transmission from these extreme values into the rest of the um, domain of public opinion. Yeah, I think that this becomes interesting in kind of the kind of conceptual, the kind of a, a potential for a genetic kind of 
account for our, our account for conceptual genesis, I suppose, uh, because if if it is true that that um, there are certain um, manifest aspects of the way that we think of uh, that we conceptualize things, the way we name things, etc., that relate to these maximas and minimas rather than averages, then there's a certain kind of um, emphatic difference, I guess, where um, there there could be kind of like an asymptotic nonlinear relation um, between motivations if you were to map them out, where people get begin to get very, very uh, tense. There's like an increase in tension as you approach the the boundary of that minima or maxima, possibly. I'm just kind of thinking of of, of implications um, more broadly than I should be, possibly. But yeah, I think that's an interesting um, comparison because in the lecture itself, um, um, he he does talk about pre-revolutionary situations. Um, so um, uh, a situation in which the uh, social group is um, uh, sort of destructures itself uh, before our restructuring. Uh, so he compares this to um, in the development of uh, of a child. Um, the the child, for example, starts crawling, um, uh, and then they they sort of become proficient at crawling. They they can get around easily, but then at some point, they the the crawling mechanism starts to uh, become destructured. Um, they 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 sort of lose their proficiency. Um, and then it restructures um, in a, a new form where they can start walking on on two legs. Um, uh, sorry, I'm oversimplifying it, but um, there's a there's a, a destructuring of the uh, of the mechanism, and then a restructuring. Um, and he he compares this to uh, the revolutionary situation or the, the pre-revolutionary situation, where there's a a sort of destructuring of the social field. Um, uh, that's preliminary to a, a restructuring of it, um, and so I wonder if we can compare this to the the these phenomena of um, minimum and, and maximum that uh, that he's um, uh, that uh, Duguay is is uh, bringing up here. Um, that um, there would be some sort of uh, uh, um, uh, a maximum uh, state that can. Uh, like a maximum of tension or something like that that would precede a, a restructuring and a, a new um, a new average would come about as a result of this maximum or something like that. I'm not sure if that that is a um, a valid uh, comparison to make, but um, yeah, it's an interesting connection. Yeah, I think I think we're not probably not allowed to do like um, make inference from statistical dynamics without like sufficient formal. Um, like we need to use like 500 symbols to do this. So we can't just use words. We're not allowed to do that. Yeah, statistics is hard. And I, I know very little about statistics. So I can't, uh, um, I can't comment too much about um, what Duguay is, is uh, bringing to this intervention. But um, I'm just going on the basis of his remarks um, and how he presents it. Um, but uh, I'm sure there's much more technical ways of discussing these topics. Uh, maybe just um, I'll, I'll bring up um, what uh, Alyosha put in the chat here that uh, this can be connected to stable and metastable equilibrium. Um, yeah, I think that's uh, probably a, um, a useful comparison. Um, so there's a, so so this notion of, of metastability is, is a key one for Simon Dong. Um, 
So it's a, it's a sort of provisional stability uh, in which there is still potential for uh, transformation uh, as opposed to stability in the sense of uh, the lowest energy state or the, the, um, the, the state after which the transformation has already occurred. Um, so a, a metastable state uh, is uh, it's, it's not undergoing a transformation, but it retains the potential for transformation. Um, and um, uh, so something like the average would be, um, um, I guess, um, something that it, it has this appearance of stability, um, but uh, the introduction of new extreme value um, can restructure the whole uh, social field of, of uh, public opinion. Um, and, uh, um, and yeah, so the, the, we can draw this connection with metastability. Uh, I think that's a, a useful connection to make. I can do it. I'm starting recording already. I would like to point out a preliminary difficulty. I do not mean that there is no answer to this difficulty, but I would like to hear it. This difficulty is this. Can we attempt an axiomatization of the human sciences from a domain that does not itself belong to the human sciences? More precisely, what seems to me to be anterior to the human sciences is not nature, but the totality of man plus nature. Can we, from a structure of thought borrowed from nature, axiomatize the whole man plus nature? It seems to me that one is necessarily condemned to something like a paralogism whenever one tries to explain the totality by the laws of one of its parts. Thus, as soon as you have explained the origin of the platonic archetype by the model of the striking of metal, you have been obliged to say that, really, that the relation of the wedge to the metal was the model of the relation of the idea to the sensible, the notion of model, in this proposition does not itself model the relation of the wedge to the metal. It belongs by right to the world of discourse and is constituted from the relation of sense to appearance. How can you without paralogism constitute a structure of language from the things spoken of in language? How can a relationship between things, the corner and the metal, serve as a model for the meaning of speech? If one really wants to axiomatize the sciences of man, it seems to me more coherent to do so from the most significant discourse that which tends towards the totality and not from an object sector of the speech. There are, moreover, other possibilities of axiomatization than that which would proceed from the top downwards from the total discourse, perhaps from the nascent pre-categorical signification. On the other hand, I do not see how we can constitute the universe of discourse from the region nature, which is itself something in the discourse. That, no. If we admit that the region nature is part of the discourse, we cannot, that there is a possibility. The speech cannot be part of one of its object sectors. In Stoic language, what is said is not a body. I cannot understand what is said by means of what is said. The speech cannot be a part of them. But how can one admit that nature is part of the discourse? This is the premise of your argument, and I will reject it absolutely. I do not say that nature is part of discourse, but that it is about nature in the discourse. On the other hand, I see in your position the danger of an objectivism. It is supposed that consciousness is part of a total field, field and that the meanings of the speaker are part of the whole of things. Hence the metaphorical character of all your transpositions from the plane of nature to the plane of human meanings. Yes, but be careful. This is not a metaphor. You speak of metaphor because you start from a conception of meanings that does not integrate the notion of transductive relationship. 
But here, it cannot be a paralogism in the doctrine I presented because it is not a logism. In other words, there is not a universe of discourse, nor is there a meaning of all meanings. It is quite certain that a doctrine of this kind must present itself as a totality, and that it cannot be thought of with a theory of meaning borrowed from other doctrines. It would then appear as a paralogism, and I do not believe it to be one within its own logic, which it brings with it. There will be no more metaphorical element in your explanation if you are sure that all the spoken meanings are part of the domain you axiomatize. This is what first must first be demonstrated. Now we can only demonstrate it by speaking. We must therefore always presuppose the word and the laws proper to meaning. No. No, no I was kidding. Um, <laughs> I, can, I can go back from the laws of speech to perception to the insignificant, but I cannot do the opposite process. No, there's, the, there's a theory of speech far in excess of what might be admitted. It is giving value to speech. There is a theory of nature in what, I have in what I've tried to present, which cannot admit such a theory of signification as contained in speech. There is not the word, but there are the words. There is a multitude of types of words. There's the meaning, signification, yes, but not the word. Right, so we can pause there again um, at the end of the, the back and forth with Adika uh, uh, and Simon Um um I think, yeah, this is a, an interesting back and forth because um, they start from very different conceptions of uh, uh, of what philosophy does, I think, um, and they, they end up, uh, there, there's, they, 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 they sort of, um, just oppose their two conceptions. Um, it's hard for them to um, uh, sort of find a, a point of agreement because they start from such different uh, uh, starting points. Um, so Simon Don, um, I think I think uh, Ricardo is right to uh, describe it as he starts from the notion of the human being as integrated into um, a natural world. Um, uh, so. Um, there's um, uh, the the realm of human significations is uh, is one realm uh, within the world, um, and then Simon Don, uh, sorry uh, Ricard, um, he starts from the opposite conception that uh, the human being or the human world is um, opposed to nature. It uh, and it constitutes uh, in in uh, this is a sort of nominological conception. Um, the uh, the um, uh, the natural world is constituted in um, in language or in the activity of the human subject. Um, so there's um, uh, a sort of fundamental um, opposition between their two perspectives, and uh, I, I don't think there's any way to um, really make sense of one in the perspective of the other. Sorry, I kind of missed that. Um, could you could you recap? Because I'm I was trying to trace this and I was uh, struggling to follow it a little bit. Right. Um, yeah. So the the opposition between Ricard and Simon Don is, um, I think, uh, has to do with the relationship between the human realm and the natural world. Um, so for Simon Don, the human realm is uh, included within the natural world, or um, uh, there's a, a continuity, at least, between the two. Um, whereas for for Ricard, there's um, there's a, the the human realm 
constitutes the natural world um, within uh, discourse or within uh, language. Um, and uh, um, so in that, in that sense, they have this fundamental opposition to each other that um, I don't really think of any way to bridge or to overcome. What do you guys think of the argument that uh, <clears throat> Ricoeur makes about um, the speech cannot be part of one of its object sectors? And then he mentions in Stoic language, what is said is not a body. I cannot understand what is said by means of what is said. So. I think there he's, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think, um, I think Simon Dom is right to, uh, to say that the, the presupposition that, that Ricard is making is precisely that um, nature is a part of discourse, um, or it is, uh, that, that nature is included in discourse um, um, rather than the opposite. Um, um, and, uh, so it's only it's only if you make that presupposition that you can argue that discourse can't be explained on the basis of of nature because it's one of its because nature is one of the objects of discourse. Um, um, so uh, yeah. So sorry, go ahead. So I was just going to say that yeah, I think I think um, Simon Don uh, um, states it correctly that uh, that 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 Ricardo was making this presupposition. Um, um, that that you would have to um, uh, either accept or reject. So so is he basically charging him with a kind of like logocentrism or something by saying that like you can only disallow like the characterizing this thing that is a paradigm borrowed from thermodynamics as a pure metaphor that's just kind of like linguistic. You can only think that if you think it, it's almost like that. Um, I'm coming from a very different background here, so bear with me. I'm thinking of like critiques of Said and stuff, where like I love Orientalism as a book and stuff, but like there's these ideas of like, well, how how far can you go with this idea of like discourse constituting, or you know that that the world is discourse, the world is language, because there's 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 stuff in excess of that that isn't captured by it. But I suppose if Ricard is coming from that perspective, then it would it would seem to him that. Like he said, you know, you can't explain the word by its own definition. You can't explain language just with another piece of language. But the point for Simondon is that there is a, there's a kind of uh, in his ontology, or whatever. There's that that human speech, or discourse, or language is not, you know, that, that there's a realm beyond that. There is a a real, so to speak, that um, if that's the right word, is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say so. Um, but um, here's still this more classical uh, tradition um, of an opposition between culture and nature in Ricoeur's uh, answer. So um, I would say he's he's more looking through this more um, cultural phil philosophical lens and the lens of a semiologist uh, of his times, um, because this this stance of a cultural uh, philosophy of or of this um, perspective through language, we can explain everything, uh, was very prominent in the 50s, 60s, and uh, ongoing with all these semiologists like uh, Roland Barthes, uh, etc. And I guess Simon in in this sense is 
very much opposing this uh, specific um, tendency in, in French philosophy because he has a very um, strict ontology that is, uh, that is bound back to, to uh, the scientific discovery, discoveries of his time and he's building up this, this um, bottom to top um, emergent um, figures uh, that are not very often yet looked in philosophy because um, there is this this typical notion of his time um, that uh, these, these macro structures of society of speech of different uh, forms of episteme or of uh, the logos are structuring all of human uh, existence and experience and I guess um, that's why it's it's so hard to mediate between these two positions right now. Uh, in this conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, a good way of, uh, of setting out the opposition between the two. Um, and I think, um, um, going back to uh, Alyosha, your comment, um, the, I think maybe the, instead of saying that Timondon, it has to do from, um, that Timondon puts thought in relation to a, a real, um, I think, I think the real is not really a term that Simon uses, or, or um, uh, reality um, is not so much one of his terms. But um, I think I think we can understand this as a kind of naturalism. I think is um, is what what this opposition comes comes down to. Um, so uh, Simon Don um, presupposes that the human um, realm or the human uh, a domain or whatever you want to call it um, is uh, part of the natural world and arises out of uh, natural phenomena um, and so uh, because of that it, it, this um, paradigmatism or this borrowing of, of concepts from the physical realm to apply to the human realm is valid um, and it's not it's not purely metaphorical it's not just a, a linguistic transfer it's uh, looking at actual relations of structuring that are the same in both domains. Um, but if you start from the, the presupposition that the natural realm is, uh, is to be understood as the object of discourse, then, uh, um, then you, 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 you reach this um, sort of impasse where you, you have uh, the, the relationship between discourse and uh, and the, the natural world is uh, this sort of fundamental opposition, and you can't um, you can't uh, explain how discourse arises out of uh, the natural world. Okay, can I push on this um, theme a little bit? It seems like there may be um, the tension that's moving back and forth is around the question of how the translation um, first and foremost before any transduction um, uh, poses the philosophical problem um, the, and I think that Simondo may also have has tried to um, analogize and say something about the communicative um, stratum the medium between, for example, uh, the study of physics um, and uh, 
and other biological or the natural we sciences. Would introduce, would introduce it with central side one, you know, terms of being would be associated with the nature. Things. And then man and the human sciences simplified in, in referring to it as um, utilizing language to talk about the human condition. What I'm trying to say is that uh, there is this problema between the um, the movement from descriptive understanding of the physical phenomenon and how one then analogizes to the, to the human experience and then how that may be mapped or how those signals may be communicated back over into the study of natural phenomenon and the gradients that, that is happening um, as there is a, a change across these domains. So the influence of the language that is used to understand the natural world, the physics or chemistry, um, moving back to try to explain the human condition and then the use of language to move back through to try to account for the phenomenons that occur in the, mm. uh, in the physical world, uh, seen or unseen. And so no. I think that this is maybe what it might be under discussion to a certain extent. The um, loss of the signal or what's retained how is the discourse about the natural world affecting man and vice versa? How is the discourse of man and the use of language able to, to account for the, uh, the natural world? Yeah, I think um, uh, I'm glad you brought up the, the, the notion of communication again, because I think maybe part of the um, Part of what's uh, at issue here is that, um, as I mentioned earlier, Simon Don takes communication to be something secondary. Um, so the communication of information um, in, in the information theoretical sense is a secondary phenomenon. Uh, and then what he's trying to get at is how there is um, how information arises in the first place. Um, so how is a structure generated that can then um, Secondarily, be transmitted in uh, in the sense of information. So he he introduces his his notion of a, a attention of information as something um, primary rather than the quantity of information um, that is measured in information theory. And I think um, partly part of his opposition to taking um, taking language as as fundamental um, is. Uh, uh, is precisely that, um, that he understands language in, in, as um, a means of communication primarily, um, and he's um, uh, uh, opposing, or, or he wants to, um, he wants to understand what um, gives rise to uh, what can be communicated rather than uh, the process of communication itself. Yeah, I think, I think what I got out of what I got out of the recourse uh, criticism here and Simundin's um, reply is that 
I think that report does bring up an, a kind of correct accusation that that Simundin is particularly um, weak, weak, possibly with regards to sufficiently delineating the human and natural domain. Um, and uh, and this, I mean, it's definitely undeniable that the, this differentiation is a precondition, theoretical precondition for, for Simundin's project in, on the mode of existence of technical objects, um, and especially in the third part of the essence of technicity, which we just went through. Um, and but I think that um, and of course and then also I want to say that the recourse approach to bring up language is, is natural um, um, reasoning here because in making this the claim to this kind of differentiation like locating that that distinction between when, when we're talking of when we're when we're referring to human versus nature it makes sense to kind of and it's I guess it's trendy as well to, to um, make a, a uh, to look at the, the, the natural sciences, particularly the, not the study of natural language that was very, very popular at the time. So it was in, the, in either the continental or analytical circles, people were, were going back to the study of language and there was this whole linguistic turn around this period. And it does make sense that, in, um, that if we are to look there, that could be a possible solution to a problem that Simone could could have issue with, but Simone didn't. Although I think I think he made a very valuable point in the light, the later section, because if you were to theoretically uh, consider language to be a kind of uh, um, axiomatic pre consideration of his, his theory as he posits it, then I think that he risks a kind of reification of the speech level things and like he someone would probably say like there's a difference in talking about talking and about something than there is about talking about that thing so it's kind of that uh, semantic meta semantic difference which someone wants to make sure he's not giving in a first order sense like a theory of language yeah this is something that we um remarked on when in reading that third part of uh, on the mode of existence of technical objects um so for, for those who, who weren't there, um, in that third part, Simon Don gives um, uh, basically a philosophical anthropology, uh, a genesis of uh, a genetic account of different modes of existence of the human being uh, or of being in the world. He, uh, he uses the Heideggerian term there. Um, and uh, he, so he gives um, this genetic account of different modes of existence, uh, the magical, the religious, the technical, and so on. Um, but in this whole uh, philosophical anthropology, he doesn't um, specify where language fits in, or he, there's no there's no place for language in that whole um, uh, genetic schema. Um, and uh, um, yeah, I think I think um, we can say that there's probably a, there's a, a sort of an absence of language within Simon Don's work, and it might be deliberate in the sense that as you as you pointed out, sixty one that. Uh, there was this linguistic turn uh, within philosophy, um, you know, in this era that he is, um, I guess, setting himself against uh, in that sense. So he's he's uh, um, an anti-linguistic philosopher um, in the sense that language is uh, is not a, a topic that he cares a lot about or that he uh, that he puts um, a lot of importance on. Um, so yeah, that's a, another um, uh, sort of uh, locus of this um, disagreement is uh, 
where uh, whether we need to make this so uh, a, way of behaving that a, a place for language within philosophical anthropology. But couldn't you say that, that I kind of was asking this in the chat that like Simone's, Simone's critique of what Ricoeur is doing is exactly like in a way Ricoeur is doing what he's accusing Simone of doing of like from Simone's language of what I what I was asking not manifest in chat of like using the individuated thing to try and explain the individual so it's like this endless recursive like thing that doesn't actually explain anything so if you are assuming this divide between man and nature and then you're trying to start from a point of you know, it's it's as though there's like a series of metastable systems that are all resolved into these different states and then you're using like something that is the end result of something which is man as though it is something that needs to be explained like I'm losing the language here, but I guess that it was it was making me think of that critique that he brings up in in this and I think in other essays. Of like, if you're using the distinction and you're assuming the man almost as that as one kind of individual that needs to be like explained in that way, then it's already assuming a separation from nature. Like, there's there's all kinds of individuation that would have happened throughout that even that intellectual process that isn't being acknowledged, right? Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think um, one way of, of stating the objection that's for, that Simon Dole makes to to uh, Ricardo's um, mode of, of arguing is that um, if you start from uh, the distinction between human and nature, um, then you're you're already presupposing what you should be explaining instead. Uh, so Simon Dole wants to go. Um, uh, underneath that, that, that distinction in some way uh, to show how that distinction arises rather than starting from the distinction and then um, uh, remaining with, within uh, the human realm or, or showing how the, the um, um, showing how the uh, uh, natural world is constituted within the, the world of discourse or something along those lines. Um, so you're, you're already starting from something that is uh, structured uh, with this human nature distinction rather than showing how the structure arises, which is what he wants to do. Um, okay, so I think we can go on to the next uh, intervention or the next uh, back and forth with uh, Jean-Yves I believe. I will not return to what Ricardo has just said, but I wonder whether you have drawn from the point of view of the axiomatic of the human sciences all that you could have drawn from the theory of information or of game theory. You have especially considered physical science and you have named axiomatic of the human sciences what is rather a philosophy of nature. You have left aside the discussion of information theory that you had made in your thesis, what it brings that is positive, signal theory, coding, decoding, and what it misses. It measures only a quantity of alternatives and presupposes questions, a meaning that it does not provide. I wonder whether the analysis of what the theory of information brings, what it does not bring, the relation of these signals to an irreducible natural language could not constitute the basis of an authentic axiomatic of the human sciences. Did you prefer a philosophy of nature? It's not a criticism, it's a question. Without a doubt, only here. If we can appeal to the notion of subception, I would say that I was diverted from analyzing to the end what an information theory could bring because it seemed to me that it concealed a danger. It conceals the danger of hypostatizing what the Anglo-Saxons call adjustment, adaptation. The theory of information is perfectly suited when the transmitter and the receiver are fixed realities, which is to say, defined once and for all. Their regions of being, their ontological statuses, are defined in advance. 
To this extent, if one wanted to define a theory of the human sciences based on the theory of information, one would find that the supreme value is to adapt, to adjust. Everything that has been built in this area, all the cybernetic mechanics, all the electronic turtles, electronic foxes, homeostats, are mechanisms of adjustment. And that is precisely what seems to me inapplicable to thinking and researching what man is. No doubt, but you reduce the theory of information too much to its purely material conditions. The important thing is the notion of randomness. What is communicated in a message is not something, but a series of answers to presupposed questions. There is nevertheless, in the treatment of information, an effort to structure the probable and the improbable, a remarkable adaptation of mathematics to the human sciences. But this randomness is ambivalent. There is significant randomness and non-significant randomness. What I am blaming for the probabilistic theory, I'm saying probabilistic, of the information, because I would like an information theory but a non-probability theory, what I am blaming for the probabil probabilistic theory of information, it confuses two types of randomness, unpredictability. If, for example, we pour sand on the table to transmit the position of each of the grains of sand, it will be necessary to have a quantity of information which will be greater than that which would be necessary to transmit a page where it would be inscribed the summaries of the most advanced mathematics we know right now. In other words, the arbitrary randomness of the type of the position that the grains of sand take on a table costs as much to transmit in information theory because it is unpredictable as the significant random. Nothing is more difficult to convey than the image of a pile of sand in television, for example. But then you go no further than I go because you have not engendered meaning. You imagined it with potentials and tensions. It is rather a metaphor. I believe, for my part, that a reflection on the theory of information should make it possible to explain the difference between meaning and the message. But how? This is an important problem. It is no longer an information theory that can solve it. For example, if I want to transmit a square, I draw a square on a blank page, I put a television camera on top of the page, and I transmit the square with the line analysis system. It takes 9 million separate points, 9 million separate signals to transmit the square, exactly as if I had to transmit, for example, the granular surface of the table. On the contrary, if I want to convey to a correspondent this, namely, there is a square on this page, it has 9 centimeters of side, and it is equidistant from both edges, with a few words, because my correspondent knows what a square is, I will have done much better than transmitting the television picture. We agree. We can transmit the word. We are transmitting messages to each other right now, but that presupposes questions, that presupposes meaning. I do not believe that you have solved this problem of meaning by a philosophy of nature, by the potential differences you have mentioned, any more than I can solve it by my reflection on the notion of information. This reflection, however, allows me to avoid these images and delimit exactly the problem. You depart from a philosophy of nature and you bring in the germs of origin, but where did these, germs, where did these first germs come from? This is the question. I will answer this to the first question. I do not believe that a theory of language is opposed to the theory that I presented, because for language to be understood, there must be tension in the receiver. Thus, for example, a language which does not interest, a language which does not bring a message relative to a problem which occupies us, is a dead language, precisely like grains of sand. It is useless, does not inform anything, because it is not the germ which, falling into us on a metastable ground, waiting to be structured, structures it. In other words, there must be an expectation, there must be a need. Here, all the analyses that have been done on the motivations in perception should be presented. As for the second point, namely the origin of structural germs, it is obviously an extremely delicate problem, but I do not believe either that a theory of language can solve it. But then how can one envisage the relation between all figurative language and natural language? 
What would be natural language? Is it still a language? It's getting too difficult and we talk too much. You got that right. I did not look for the origin of archetypal schemes, the origin of forms. Maybe we could. If you give them, then what? You show us only how they are transmitted and they are amplified. How they structure a domain without being archetypes that cover the whole and without being involved in a hylomorphic relationship, that is to say, already imminent in the sunulon, in the individual. Right, so that's the, the uh, um, end of that interaction there. Um, I think... Um, I think Hippolyte's objection is uh, in some way similar to uh, Ricardo's objection. Um, um, I think he, he is likewise, um, uh, he thinks that Simondon needs to start from uh, something like meaning or, uh, or that something like meaning is presupposed um, in, what he's, uh, in what he's doing. Um, and uh, that without having that, um, without having some sort of um, theory of meaning uh, uh, prior to trying to do this analysis that Timo is doing, then you're um, you're sort of missing the the main part of the the, the problem. Um, so he thinks that we need to have this preliminary theory of meaning before we can do this uh, uh, what he calls a philosophy of nature. Yeah, I'm trying to understand why he believed. What is the opposition between figurative and natural language to him? Is this uh, maybe I just don't know the genesis of like what sixty was talking about? Because it seems to me that the obvious like uh, critique of that idea is that even so-called natural language or, or non-figurative language is still figurative, you know, or that, that there's no there's no non-abstract language. There's no language that doesn't. Isn't communicated by some kind of performance of like a series of procedures. There's just ones that we're more or less used to based on society, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But like that, you know, it, it's as though it, it would be like saying, well, the the, the word boy, that's a, it's natural language. It's just a simple concept. It's not like transduction. But you know, I, I feel like it's uncontroversial, especially like post structuralist spaces, point out why that that isn't true. Is that, am, I, am I going in the right direction, or am I missing the point here? I would, uh, I would just point you towards like the, the Chomsky hierarchies, I guess. I think that's what they're called, or the Chomsky hierarchy, that um, where he, there's an attempt to kind of contextualize the relation between natural language and formal language, because that's like what was really, really theoretically contingent for a lot of projects around this time. Yeah, so for those who, uh, who don't know, the Chomsky hierarchy is um, um, it's a, um, a set of uh, different characterizations of uh, formal languages um, based on uh, the type of um, um, abstract machine that can uh, accept that language. Um, and uh, so Simon, or sorry, um, Chomsky um, uh, basically showed or argued um, that um, certain types of grammar that were prevalent uh, in linguistics at the time um, were not actually capable of, um, uh, of recognizing uh, certain structures in human languages. Um, so they were, they were too simple, basically, um, and you need to have a more powerful um, uh, uh, grammar in order to adequately um, 
um, understand the structure of human languages. Um, I'm not sure, yeah, um, going back to um, Hippolyte's intervention, um, I'm not sure exactly what he means by this opposition between uh, figurative and natural language. Um, I think he's objecting to, um, he's, or he's, he's bringing up the, um, the, this idea that what Simonon was doing is a, is a metaphorical in the same way that, that Ricardo had done. Um, so the idea that, um, this uh, paradigmatism, it means um, uh, taking uh, one field as a, a metaphor for another, or a concept in one field as a metaphor for something in a different field. Um, and um, I guess Ippolit is uh, objecting to this figurative use of language um, as being sort of theoretically fundamental. Um, uh, so he, he thinks that, that Simon Don is is treating these um, these metaphors as uh, as um, conceptual elucidations or something like that um, in an abusive way, um, whereas uh, for Simon Dome, what he's doing is not um, a metaphor. Um, he's he's actually um, finding these uh, same structures in different domains. Um, so there's a there's actual um, uh, relations there this analogical relation is is a, a real relationship between different domains um and it's not a, a metaphor um and and there isn't this um sort of presupposed um domain of meaning in the way that equal mm -hmm. is, is um is uh, arguing i'm just trying to i'm just trying to understand like for example his earlier objection when he says i believe that a reflection on the theory of information should make it possible to explain the difference between meaning and the message like, could, could you locate it there as well? Like, there's still a belief or a desire on Hippolyte's part to separate. It's like, the, it's, it, I think it might just continually go back to this, this point about transduction that Simone is always trying to make of like, on what basis are you assuming these are like two stable entities, the meaning and the messenger, there's the transmitter and the receiver, and they only affect each other insofar as there's a, if, you know, in that model, a metaphorical or an imaginary relationship placed between them, but they don't directly sort of like modify or, or change each other in any way, except for whatever the content of messages or things that are sent back and forth. And the message then is the vehicle for the meaning and all that kind of stuff. Whereas it seems to me, again, I'm, I'm literally just making this up because I'm trying to understand, but from reading like some of the forward and some other Simone and stuff, there's a, there's a bit where the Gerali, I don't know how you say it, the one who wrote the forward talks about, um, he's talking about the idea of the good form as the idea of like the most stable or fixed or whatever and how Simone is critiquing that. And then he says that the, the good form for Simone isn't that, but it's the one most rich in energetic potential. So charged with future transactions, meaning that information born out of transactive movements isn't already coded or established as a message mm -hmm. sent by an emitter, yeah. transmitted to a receiver. And then this is the quote I was looking for. It is form taking topolo topological information. So it, it's kind of like it informs, I mean, at this point, I'm out of my depth with Simon Tin, but uh, it just, uh, this, that, that statement by Hippolyte, I wonder if, is there, is it helpful to look at that in terms of him saying like, 
you know, how can we characterize the, the vehicle by which the meaning is transmitted? And this is kind of like a typical structuralist way of looking at language. Whereas there's a way that someone in the, I think is saying that it, it's like the transductive process itself where, you know, that the nothing is lost and that, that from the pre-individual state into the individuated state, there's like all these tensions just because they are resolved into a new state. It doesn't mean that there's like they've lost their relationship with the previous state. And in fact, it is like it is its its internal resonance. I'm not sure the term he uses, but like the tension between these differentials that it is like always modifying each other, I guess. I, I'm sure I'll need to know a lot more about someone to actually know what I'm talking about here, but Yeah, I think that was um, along the right lines um, in the sense that um, um, so the comment that, that Simon Do makes about uh, the transmission of, uh, of signals um, in, the, in television or, or in photography, I think, is, um, is a, a good um, encapsulation of his criticism of uh, information theory or um, um, the, the uh, what the limits of information theory are. Um, so, as he as he points out in this example, if you take you pour a bucket of sand on a table and you want to transmit the exact position of each grain of sand on that table, you have to. Um, uh, it takes a huge amount of information to transmit that, even though there's there's basically no structure to it, or, or precisely because there is no structure to it. Um, so, this this transmission has. Um, um, has uh, or the, the the message that's to be transmitted has this high quantity of information in the information theoretical sense, but in a um, a more fundamental sense of information, there's you're not actually transmitting any information because there's no structure to to be transmitted. Um, and so he wants to um, draw from this type of example the notion of a, a, a structural information. Um, and uh, so this would be like his example of the square, where you can transmit you can transmit the the image of the square just by saying it's a square with you know these dimensions and so far from the edge of the page and so on. You can just in a few words transmit the actual structure of the of the the shape on the page, and um, and so the that that uh, picture of the square has a, a high uh, tension of information. Um, in this new concept that he introduces, this, uh, it has this capacity to generate structure in uh, uh, another uh, in a field, um, the the field of I don't know, the psychological field of the receiver, uh, for example. Um, but even though um, its quantity of information transmitted might be much lower than the the bucket of sand dumped on the table, um, so he. Uh, he thinks that so again, again, this comes down to the idea of communication being secondary. Um, so, um, the if you if you treat communication as primary, then you have to recognize this bucket of sand as having this high quantity of information. Um, um, but if we treat uh, if we want to take information in a sense that has more. Um, more uh, depth to it, and not just in this purely quantitative sense, then we have to make communication secondary to the actual generation of this uh, attention of information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I like, uh, I really like this idea in this exchange because he's 
differentiating uh, these different forms of uh, or different types of information and how they differ from each other and he's uh, generally reacting to this this uh, hypothesis of uh, hyperlight or uh, uh, that um, that there is a difference between meaning and the message uh, conveyed in this theory of information or the reflection on it uh, but for Simon Don there is um, this specific difference maybe that can be uh, solved with his notion of transduction um, that can be then the basis of uh, understanding of uh, human sciences because um, when we look at um, information theory there is this problem that it is strictly operational as you said in a quantitative sense so when we transmit something um, the different paths it can take all the channels all the uh, the, the sender and the um, receiver they are all set um, before we are even beginning uh, to reflect on it in this uh, very static form of information theory in the uh, theory in the shannon sense and i was reminded in this <coughs> excuse me in this paragraph um, um, I was reminded of um, Michel Serres as well as uh, Jacques Derrida because both of them have this notion um, of an more, uh, how can I describe it, of a more um, dynamic information or communication theory. In Serres it is called the parasite and in uh, Derrida the différence. Um, so there is always these, these um, specific axioms that are set uh, uh, especially for the channels uh, and the mediums uh, communication has to take uh, and especially information in a more technical sense that are not included in this um, theory of information they have to be set they are cuts uh, in the realm of reality that can only be um, be included reflexive um, in a system through its different um, um, interferences, so to speak, and a form um, and a pure theory of information couldn't um, allow such a reflexive uh, theory of, of communication. Yeah, I think it would be interesting. Um, uh, like I mentioned, you know, Simono doesn't really have a, a theory of language or, or doesn't make language into a, a, a real thematic for uh, discussion. Um, it would be interesting to um, um, it would be interesting to see if we could uh, develop this idea of a reflexive communication um, uh, or or this um, reflexive dimension to communication that uh, is not um, analyzed in traditional information theory and and see um, um, because I think I think some of Simondo's criticism or his uh, his uh, antipathy towards uh, the linguistic turn or, or to uh, any sort of approach that takes language as fundamental. Um, I think it's, uh, as we discussed today, I think it, it some extent rests on this uh, communicational notion of language, uh, language as uh, having to do with communication um, or, or as being fundamentally structured by communication. And, uh, you know, there's uh, reason to um, question that, that um, account of language, I think, um, and we can, you know, it would be interesting to uh, try to develop that, these other um, dimensions of language uh, that that don't fit into that communicational account. Yeah, I just want to add and interject really 
quickly because going back to the Chomsky um, point um, around the grammars, and I think that Hippolyte was actually um, siding with the emergence of uh, thought along Chomsky lines. I do think that Simondon is approaching the, uh, the question around the communication as secondary, but also from an engineering standpoint, from the, from the physics that is involved with the, uh, the message, less so than the meaning. With Chomsky grammars, uh, he was saying that not natural language has constraints on context free grammars, and I'm particularly speaking within the domain of uh, uh, language um, <clears throat> and the languages that are used for computation, so natural language and its various forms communicating. So I'm, I'm kind of ruling out the visual aspect of language, even though that's interpreted by natural languages. I'm talking mainly to the question around um, uh, <clears throat> the connection between the uh, language as, as a system that shows mathematical properties and, and its relation to uh, computation. So Chomsky would talk, talked about the, uh, you know, the Chomsky grammar um, and the BNFs talked about like the recursion aspect, which is uh, seen in, in mathematics and concatenation, and this has a lot to do with the signal uh, and the message. And the interesting question is around the compositionality, what happens when meaning starts to emerge? And I can only speak in natural language. Put differently, becoming consistent with tensile movements in the recursion manifest. I would presume that there is a meaning that emerges um, along the signal, the message. How that is accounted for in these other systems is an interesting question. And I don't know, maybe you guys have been talking to that and I kind of got lost in this, some of the modal information going back and forth between dialogues and the, and the postings. But I think that there is this thread around um, the communication, which I too agree. I think Simone is actually pointing to something else initially um, that I also see is, is now uh, a big part of some of the AI development around natural language um, with nets and weights and how this can generate language and all that. But I won't go off on that right now. I just want to point out that how meaning may um, be uh, intertwining or flowing on top of um, the message, you know, what is the means by which that message gets um, I hate to use the word cut up or carved up or chunked to create meaning. That's on the, on the very sort of computational level. Yeah, I think this might be um, connected to the, the problem that Hippolyte raises um, about 
where these structural germs come from. So on uh, on Simon Don's account, um, um, on Simon account, we have the the notion of transduction um, occurring uh, as the the field becomes structured um, around the the structural germ. Uh, but Simon doesn't give an account of where these germs come from in the first place. Um, and uh, um, yeah, I think it would be interesting to uh, try to develop um, an account of the, the formation of these structural germs because Simon Don doesn't want to um, doesn't want to take this as a, a sort of chance occurrence. Um, he doesn't want to make chance or probability a, a, a fundamental concept. Um, but um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly where he um, where we can find uh, an origin of these structural germs um, um, uh, apart from something like probability or chance. Um, we can go on to the next, uh, there's two short exchanges um, next. So we have uh, Weinberg and uh, Belcher. Um, <clears throat> so uh, do we have uh, a pair of volunteers to do uh, Weinberg and, uh, and Simon Don? Uh, if there's no other volunteers, I guess I'll have to be Simon Don. In the strictly constructive part of your presentation, if not even innovative, you spoke of the modular or modulation transductivity without being able to substitute, you say, other terms. On the other hand, to pass from the metaphor to a more positive expression of biological or physical order, could this not be translated by the phenomenon of induction, as with viruses, for example. One could speak of dynamic induction, and also to speak of a catalyst element, which, after all, would bring a known term in the place of a new term, perhaps not strictly indispensable. Yes, the term is insufficient, only it avoids confusion. One can use induction perhaps with this proviso, however, can induction move forward? This from which there is induction, which creates induction, does it advance? With a theory of induction, one can only ground a theory of the field. But can the origin of the field advance when structuring spreads? Is the source of the inductive field propagating as well? That's what we could ask if we wanted to use the word induction. In any case, what causes induction is elusive to in itself. What can be said is that it is in the very nature of induction to propagate itself step by step. But I grant you the word catalysis, whose property in this case is obviously more questionable. As for the concept of catalyst, it is not suitable because the catalyst remains far into the reaction. It is recoverable. In addition, the catalyst does not propagate through the area where the reaction occurs. On the contrary, transductive fitness is spreading like the explosive wave in a thundering mix. Yeah, I don't know why they chose fitness there. That's a weird choice. Um, um, so they said, uh, on the contrary, transductive fitness is spreading like the explosive wave in a thundering mix. Um, uh, that should be something like, on the contrary, the transductive uh, form-taking operation um, Propagates like the explosive wave in a, a thundering mix. We don't think that the psychosocialism um, of a separate window has different. Yeah, so I don't know why I don't know where fitness comes from in there. Just a weird translation choice. Um, 
Um, yeah, I'm not sure um, when when uh, Weinberg refers to this uh, phenomenon of dynamic induction, um, and uh, um, he points to viruses as an example. I'm not sure exactly what he's referring to there. I don't know if anyone else knows uh, what this phenomenon is. That's beyond my specialty, sadly. Actually, we don't actually. Think we need to find a virologist to uh, to join our group. Uh, I can hazard a guess um, that he could. What he could be referring to is the way that um, viruses um, are introduced into a cell um, and uh, um, sort of force the cell to produce more viruses. So the the initial virus um, acts as almost like a structuring germ that brings about more more uh, virus production. Um, but that's, that would just be a guess that that's what he's referring to. I'm not sure. Yeah, Simon Dong is um, a little bit wary, I think, of that term induction, um, possibly because of uh, the the meaning of induction in uh, in logic or or in uh, intellectual operations. Um, and we we did see this um, uh, in the on the mode of existence of technical objects, where he he did. Um, Give an account of inductive thinking and deductive thinking, um, and how they arise within the, the genetic uh, anthropology, um, and uh, and so I think maybe he's um, wary of using the term induction in in this sense um, because he doesn't want to um, uh, sort of confuse it with the sense the, the logical sense uh, of induction. But I think it must have shown some sort of attribution to. Induction is used Actually, in mathematics. I don't mathematics, think that like the psychosocial realm somehow is separate or has different qualities than the waves of particles. Except in the way there, that um, that is, you know, a, a separate metaphoric use of the term induction. I think it's still possibly borrowed from mathematics, um, and might have to do with proliferation uh, within a cell. But also, yeah, it could be, yeah, I don't know exactly. Maybe there's a, a busy a physical aspect to this induction. Um, but it has to take in genetic material, the phage of a virus, has to take in genetic material in order for its machinery to work. So, um, when something is induced, and I'm pulling, pulling it at strings here, but uh, yeah, I don't know exactly. Yeah, I think we'll just have to leave that point uh, uh, hanging until we can rope in a, a virologist. Um, we can convince them that the studying Simondon is the most important use of their viral virological talents at the moment. Um, um, but uh, yeah, we can go on to the uh, the last um, intervention or the last uh, exchange between Berger and Simondon. Um, if I can get just two volunteers. Just point on this induction. I was kind of yeah. reminded of yeah. Peirce here because. Um, when he speaks here of induction and, and criticizes it, uh, so Simon, um, 
um, there there is this question if uh, induction creates something or reproduces this this genetic aspects or uh, if it is the source of the uh, inductive field propagating as well. Um, so uh, in Paris, there are also these these forms uh, of uh, math mathematical syllogism of uh, deduction, induction, and uh, abduction. But for Paris, uh, induction is uh, like uh, the deduction, something that doesn't create something new in, in particular. So um, as for viruses, for example, we have a specific um, threshold we have to um, reach for an infection to happen, for example. Uh, but there's not something particularly new created uh, in this sense. There's uh, also this determination of new qualitative aspects that can be reduced to the qualitative aspect in induction. But for PERS in uh, abduction, there's a new form of thinking these processes because um, there's the element of something new that is happening, these uh, specific jumps that cannot be reduced to a mere probability or to uh, a quantitative element that has to be reached. So there's um, already this this productive, this this um, uh, in a very idealistic sense, this uh, poetic element that creates a new qualitative aspect uh, inside of a system or a process that can then um, initiate new steps in the evolution of a specific system in relation to its surroundings or to uh, in the relation to other uh, systems or subsystems. Yeah, I've often wondered um, whether Simon Don knew Peirce's uh, Peirce work, I mean, um, um, yeah, because um, uh, because of this this triad of the uh, deduction, induction, and, and abduction, um, and uh, I've wondered how how the notion of transduction fits in with uh, with the uh, with those three forms of uh, of reasoning in Peirce. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't recall ever seeing any reference to Peirce directly in Simon Dome. But it, um, yeah, it's a, an interesting comparison to make. Oh yeah, the the I like the whole history of abduction is really interesting and kind of the the syllogistic interchanging model that Peirce uses for his formal formalization of abduction is very similar to stuff that is within within the deep history of philosophy. For instance, for example, you can see kind of the, the interchanging you know, of the syllogisms and uh, phenomenology of spirit in the Hegel work. So it's uh, there's a long kind of history of what Peirce ultimately kind of formalized as the abductive relation. Yeah, actually, I thought you were gonna when you mentioned Hegel. I thought you were gonna talk about uh, the science of logic and the the role of the syllogism and the the different uh, the the sort of um, uh, rotation of the syllogism in uh, in the, the science of logic. But uh, yeah, right. But you know, I want to point at the phenomenology because he does mention the interchanging of syllogisms in the phenomena phenomenology also. Um, and uh, whenever I talk about science of logic, people get scared. So. Yeah, it's. Uh, Intimidating, um, but uh, yeah. So we can we can try to um, finish the the reading with the last exchange here, um, so we can get two volunteers to uh, to read this exchange. Sure, I can do uh, Bert Berger. I could do Simon. I would like to ask a question. Where do you put consciousness? Should we assume it at the beginning? 
It is very difficult to answer. Consciousness in the very sense of the word is not supposed at first as a clear consciousness, but there are analogs of consciousness staggered on several levels, and consciousness integrates the patterns of activity of these less perfect analogs. There's a function there's a function of consciousness which is precisely the application of forms to contents by artifices that make it possible to structure a domain of mutually incompatible elements without discovering a new dimension. I understand what in your demonstration makes one think of, of the consciousness, but consciousness seems to be much more than that. Consciousness is effort, experience, feeling. I use metaphors too, but how to operate differently. When you say that the information is transmitted, that there is more or less information, that the information is rich or poor, I translate this into valid terms for the subject. It means that the information does not appear only when a consciousness receives a message and can give it meaning. It is by bringing into consciousness that it might be possible to resolve the difficulty presented by Mr. Hippolyte and Mr. Lecour. If therefore you stay in the field of object analysis, your theory as a description of the object is, it seems to me, a very great truth but I can use it only if there is information for the subjects. And if there is no information, that is an awareness of something, then all the rest loses its interest. Because what is a field? I can explain a field by the test I'm doing, by the consciousness, it's a certain meaning. If on the contrary, you speak of a purely objective field without an act by which I become aware of a meaning, then it is a metaphor. There is something in your system that deserves to be defined. I do not ask a particular question, but I mention this problem to know if your system is in objectivism. I do not say that at all to diminish its interest. On the contrary, I think it is very frank, very clear, and very helpful. But is it an objectivism that would bring out a more complicated form than the others, a new reality that you will call consciousness? It is not an objectivism. The system would like to be a transjectivism. That is to say, a theory according to which the theory that we have of the object is a subjective representation of the object. We make of the object a poor and negative idea. It is what is not the subject, a residue of the knowledge that the subject has. In fact, the true real is not objective. It must be grasped beyond this reductive notion. Before any opposition of subject and object can exist, a mode, a mode of being prior to the mode of the subject and the mode of the object. The shaping operation would belong precisely to this mode of being. According to this perspective, consciousness should not be considered through an adversarial scheme of all or nothing, subject or object, but rather from a more primitive trans-consciousness. Also, I do not think that I, I do not think I can maintain the opposing dualism between subject and object, but on the contrary, must consider it as expressing the result of a process of taking shape, which is, in this case, the process of individuation. It is the word ontogenesis that summarizes the question. We will adjourn the meeting by thanking Mr. Smodin for all the reflections he has given us, as well as the people who participated in the discussion made it particularly lively. And uh, thank, thank you all to you today for making the discussion very lively. Yeah, that was, uh, that was nice. Um, um, I think maybe before we leave, though, there's a couple points to, uh, to discuss um, uh, in this last exchange. Um, because I think this, um, I think the last um, answer where he says it's not an objectivism, it's a, a transsubjectivism. I think that's a, a good um, um, a summary of what he's trying to do is he wants to, he wants to give the uh, 
given account of the arising of the distinction between subject and object, rather than starting from uh, the subject uh, and and showing how the subject constitutes an object or something along those lines, um, like a, a traditional um, phenomenological account. Um, um, and uh, yeah, so this is definitely connected to the, that discussion about um, how the human domain fits into nature um, that uh, that we were talking about earlier in connection with uh, Lee Caron's um, uh, intervention. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I think I think this last uh, response from Simon Dahl is a very clear um, explanation of, of what he's trying to do. Yeah. I, th I think Ber 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 Berger probably didn't really, you know, his, his questioning was more, I mean, in, in some sense, of course, it's going to be the question of in philosophy of mind, like what, where is the seat of consciousness? What is your, your philosophy of mind is kind of what's being asked there. But it's less a, less a, a potentially problematic question, I think, than the ones that Ruth Warren posed earlier, which is that this... Not, not an accusation of an objectivism, which is clearly something which he's avoiding with his kind of ontogenetic claims, but um, a kind of uh, accusation of a certain lack of distinction about the subjective constitution of the object. And I think that there, there is, I mean, ultimately, I think that this, whether this will be, whether you're convinced or not, we'll have to kind of wait for the, the, next, the next episode, which is this wonderful book that we're gonna start next time. Yeah, that's a good uh, segue to. Um, I was going to sort of, sort of uh, preview a little bit of what we what we're going to see in the book. Um, uh, I haven't actually read the foreword, um, which is new to the English edition, so uh, I'm not sure how long it is. I, I didn't look at uh, the scans yet. Um, but do we want to read the foreword first? Um, I find sometimes uh, the foreword or or preface or whatever. Um, is uh, almost presupposes having read the book, so it's it's not always uh, um, that helpful to read it first. But uh, it's, uh, I guess we can decide collectively what we want to do. I wouldn't mind um, put me down for a four if, if it, it's a binary decision. Yeah, I'd be interested in doing it. I think it's very dense, but you know, I found it somewhat helpful. So I'm for the forward. Okay, so it sounds like everyone pretty much, uh, I'm not hearing any objections. So um, yeah, it sounds like we're um, uh, in favor of reading the foreword. Um, uh, so that, that'll be new to me. Um, but uh, in addition to that, um, uh, so how many pages actually is the, is the foreword? We can decide how much we want to read for, for next time um, if people want to read in advance. 